Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 55. A conversation with President of the Illinois Climbers Association, Andrew Staff. This is your host, Peter Horgan. I think I make it pretty obvious in the first minute of the episode, but I was really excited to bring Andrew on the show to talk about climbing in my home state of Illinois. Because you probably don't often hear the words Illinois and climbing get used in the same sentence. But that's about to change here over the course of the next hour. More importantly though, what we're really here for is to highlight another local climbing organization, one of the many LCOs that's doing amazing work and serving as the backbone of local advocacy for climbing around the country. As usual, we kick things off learning a bit more about Andrew and how he found climbing, living, and going to college in Southern Illinois. After Andrew introduces himself, we go pretty deep into the history of the ICA and get a thorough rundown of what got the ICA started, where they are today, and everything in between. It's nothing short of impressive of what they've accomplished over the last 20 years. The resume includes multiple acquisitions of bouldering areas, including the legendary Holy Boulders and the more recent acquisition of the House Boulders. Also climbing development at local state parks, and it should be mentioned that the state land manager approached the ICA to do the development, not the other way around, which you would probably think of, right? And Andrew discusses that more and how that all came to be. In addition to that, hardware replacement is another big endeavor that the ICA takes on. They have incredible community engagement and they host annual bouldering comps that bring in hundreds of competitors and spectators. It's pretty safe to say that the ICA is the real deal. One part of our conversation that I particularly enjoyed was talking about the word cooperation. They have that word highlighted on the homepage of their website alongside education and conservation. But cooperation really stood out to me and we discussed what it means to Andrew and the ICA. This was, this was a good one. I really enjoyed unpacking that word a bit because I think much of what the ICA has accomplished over the years has been rooted in cooperation. I think you'll really enjoy that part as well. So this weekend, they are hosting their annual bouldering comp and have historically been able to raise tens of thousands of dollars each year as a means to cover the acquisition costs of the Holy Boulders and now the House Boulders, which of course is so impressive. I mean, they have three to 400 people sign up to either compete or just spectate, and those funds get put right back into protecting the very boulders that they're competing on. I still have not been down to Southern Illinois to climb yet at the Holy Boulders, the House Boulders, or the legendary Jackson Falls, but if I needed any reassurance that I need to do so, this episode was it. If you'd like to support the ICA, I have a link right there in the show notes that takes you to their webpage where you can make a one-time or reoccurring monthly donation, support the rebolting program, or support the house and Holy Boulders acquisitions. There are many ways to show your support for the ICA. All right, we're just about there, as I'm sure you're very anxious to get into the episode here. But before we do, I want to tell you about a brand new show that has just dropped from Plug Tone Audio. Yes, the little intro there that I have at the start of the show, that's for the fine folks behind Plug Tone which is a collective of podcasters that are making some of the finest outdoor-related podcasts out there, and of which I'm incredibly grateful to be a part of. All right, so the amazing minds behind Plug Tone just released a show this past Monday called Written in Stone. It documents some of climbing's most historical ascents by decade. 
They kicked it off with the 1990s, my era of growing up, highlighting names that are that you are undoubtedly familiar with, including Lynn Hill and Katie Brown. I listened to both episodes as I moved my life to Boulder, Colorado this past week, and I am now anxiously awaiting the forthcoming episodes. This show is truly like unlike any other climbing podcast out there, and I know you'll be really psyched to listen. A big shout out to Chris, Emily, and Riley for putting together an incredibly unique and incredibly fun podcast for us to enjoy. Episodes one and two are now streaming anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, without any further delay, let's get into it here. Please enjoy my conversation with president of the Illinois Climbers Association, Andrew Staff. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to give thanks and show some love for the sponsors and supporters of the show. Black Diamond, Adidas Turex, Alpine Star Coffee, and Plotone Audio. Thank you all for the continued support of the Climbing Advocate podcast and dedication to the climbing community. So yeah, here we are again, round two. Uh, we tried to do this last week, but technology and internet doesn't always want to work in your favor. So um, we had to call a mulligan uh, last week and here we are. Uh, so again, thanks so much for your time and setting aside like an hour of your time tonight to circle back up. And yeah, man, I'm, I'm just so psyched to chat with you for a number of reasons, but they all pretty much revolve around talking about Midwestern climbing. I've had people yep. on from Minnesota, from Iowa, and now my home state of Illinois. I mean, this is this is awesome. I'm, uh, we met last year and chatted for a bit in Chattanooga at the, at the Access Funds Annual Conference. And um, yeah, I saw the Illinois folks hanging out there in the corner, so I had to go introduce myself and say hi. And yeah, here we are. Um, and another reason, you know, this region of the country, the Midwest, just often gets overlooked and, and glossed over when it comes to climbing, I think. So it's such a such a treat to put some uh, shed some light on the Midwest and the Great Plains because there is a lot of good quality rock around there, believe it oh, or not. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So before we get into Illinois climbing, Andrew, why don't you take a little uh, take a minute to introduce yourself and share a bit about your climbing history and when and how you're introduced to the sport? Yeah. So uh, I grew up in Southern Illinois in Carbondale <clears throat> and uh, there was, there's tons of rock, but I didn't really know much about climbing. It was the nineties and uh, it was obviously not as popular <clears throat> and well known as it is now. And um, so my family took a, a trip to Breckenridge, Colorado. And in the summer we didn't ski or do anything like that, but we went to the rec center there and to the climbing gym and my cousin who lives in Philadelphia, he had climbed some and I tried bouldering and then I got on a rope and it was the most exhilarating and scary thing I'd ever done. But I knew I was like, man, I've got to do this. This is it. And yeah, this is it. <clears throat> and so I bought some <laughs> shoes and my buddy, a buddy and I from high school who I knew climbed, we would just go. Uh, to Giant City State Park, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and mess around, <clears throat> not on anything <clears throat> good, but just kind of farting around. And then um, when I went to college, my college had a crappy little wall. Like a, most of the time I spent, I didn't even have access to the actual vertical wall, which was crappy, but I had this traversing wall. But me and some friends, we just spent hours. Um, I didn't know anything about training. I didn't know anything. But when I came back home in the summers, I started to link up with people. 
Um, and so I got to climb outside like for real for the first time. And so that's, this was probably, you know, 1999, 98, 99. And, and where'd you go to uh, college? I went to Greenville College. It's a really small Christian liberal arts school a couple hours north of Carbondale. Okay, so not far from home. No, not not far from home at all. So I would come back occasionally and then in the summers. And But it was a cool time to start climbing because a lot of people my age, like Chris Sharma and Dave Graham and and Katie Brown and all those people were just tearing it up. And so I was like, man, this is cool. You know, I would watch Rampage. I would put that on at like the wall and I even found like uh, – the same like sweater vest that Sharma's wearing without a shirt in that. And I would like climb in that didn't help me climb better, but you know, <laughs> I was going to say, try to channel some kind of uh yeah. Sharma. Juju yeah. A lot of, like. a lot of baggy prana pants and yes. uh, just Sharma was my fashion icon. So, yeah, but yeah, so that's it. And then when I moved, when my wife and I uh, moved back, really got heavily involved in the climbing community here. Um, and that's what we, before we had kids, that's what we, that's what we did. I mean, we just, it's a fantastic community and uh, a lot of sport climbing, a lot of bouldering, a lot of track climbing and just built some amazing lifelong friendships. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of our history. Is that, My, is now we talk, are we talking like early 2000s now? Yeah, we're talking early 2000s. So I graduated college in 2003 and so came back. And so we started really hitting it hard then. Mm -hmm. well, I don't want to get uh, ahead of ourselves, but was the Illinois Climbers Association, the Illinois Climbers Association at that point? Yeah. So, and I can get into the history later. It was just starting in the early 2000s. Okay. At, as it is now. Got it. Um, Got it. it, it, it it kind of morphed in from something else and we can discuss that in a bit, but yeah, yeah. Sounds so good. it was, it was getting going then. Awesome. Where else do you like to explore climbing wise outside of, outside of the Midwest, outside of <clears throat> Illinois? I love Wyoming. Um, so my 14 year old son and I, and a, and a buddy who's on the board at the ICA, Doug, uh, we've gone out to devil's tower for the last couple summers. We'll just shoot out there for a couple days mm -hmm. and get on endurance and have some fun. And, um, I love, Moab. I love Castleton Tower. I've spent a lot of time climbing in the south, like Chat, you know, Chattanooga and uh, Not too Alabama. Far away. And, stuff. Yeah. and then um, I really like climbing in Maine uh, at mm. uh, uh, Acadia. Yeah. So that's one place I went back this summer, but I didn't get to climb. Uh, mostly just fishing and stuff. But it's an amazing place if if you haven't been there. So yeah. Yeah, and I know it looks amazing. And I had a buddy tell me some stories about Acadia just the other week. He like went up there for a wedding or something, and he's like, "I'm going to Acadia. I don't know anything about it. I'm hiring a guide, and we are climbing like 50 pitches in one day." It's like, oh, it's it's he just gorgeous. Told the guide. Yeah. It. <laughs> it's it's yeah. awesome. Nice. Yeah, he just told the guide. He's like, "We are getting as many pitches as humanly possible in today." And I bet the guide was just like. Yes, this is. Yes, that's what that's what know. a guide wants to hear. Not yeah. <laughs> awesome. So. Well, it sounds like you have kind of a, a reference or an affinity for for tower climbing between Devil's Tower. I like and I like towers because, um, 
you have to climb them to get to the top of them and there's something about them and they don't even have to be that hard like i like sport climbing hard but i'd much rather especially the older i get um it's more about the experience and i would rather have fun on an easier trad climb that's maybe got some spice to it Mm -hmm. you know like taking upside like Falling, falling, big falls on pieces on Castleton, or taking upside down, you know, fun stuff like that. <laughs> that to me is more fun than just climbing a hard sport route. So, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, well, let's let's transition a bit. Let's circle back to the history of the ICA and and yeah, how it all came to be. I mean, the stories I've heard over the years now of the formation of different LCOs has varied widely. It's, um, because of access issues or, you know, nipping something in the bud and, and getting ahead of maybe a potential access issue. Um, it, you know, the stories run the gambit. So I'm curious, what was the impetus for, for the formation of the ICA? Yeah. So <clears throat> it really started, um, it started, it was originally called the Southern Illinois Climbers Alliance mm. um, because it was focusing on the, the climbings in Southern Illinois. Right. And so there's an area uh, it's got sport routes. It's got trad routes called Cedar Bluff. And Cedar Bluff was designated. It was traded. It was Forest Service. And it was traded to the Illinois Department of Natural Resources as like a water conservation area or something like that. And that threatened climbing access. And so the Southern Illinois Climbers Alliance kind of got together guys like Eric Allner and John Payne, a lot of the guys who had, who were the first ascensionists at this area and just old guard, hard climbers did so much of the development everywhere. Jim Thurmond, uh, all these guys. So they got together and they started this and they were able to protect climbing, but no new development was allowed. Mm. <clears throat> so anything else was kind of climbing was grandfathered in, but there was no new development. So you went to Cedar, you had what you had, right? You got yep. what you got. Um, and so eventually um, that morphed into the ICA and there really weren't that many access issues to deal with. Um, a majority of it was kind of dealing with Jackson Falls, right? Um, you're dealing with the Forest Service. It's not wilderness area. And so the approach was just kind of, you know, people kind of did what they wanted to. And uh, because they hadn't really been told otherwise. But um, so the ICA kind of... Uh, managed stuff there's an an apocryphal story i don't know if it's completely true that the chicago mountaineers gave the ica a drill um i don't know if that's actually true but we kind of they kind of started to focus on replacing hardware managing hardware out there um but as there weren't that many access issues because there was kind of a kind of a standstill people would climb at places um, like we lost access to a place called Opie's Kitchen, which was on a wildlife refuge, but we didn't necessarily have the mechanism to kind of fight that. 
it was a little climbing. I don't know if people who didn't climb then it was a little bit more uh, like surfing kind of in those days. Sometimes if, if an area wasn't as widely known, right. You might, you, you kind of didn't tell people about it. Yes. Um, and so, uh, but in, in that time, <clears throat> in the early 2000s, the Holy Boulders had been discovered uh, by a trio of guys, uh, Chris Lesh, a friend of ours who uh, unfortunately recently passed away, uh, Aaron Brower and Rob Rabick. They were all college students down here uh, from up in Chicago. And they were always looking for new rock. And again, this is in the days before LIDAR. This is in the days before satellite imaging. So you're looking at topos, you're driving around. They were driving around on one of their many drives and saw some rock from the side of the road and went up and checked it out and figured out who the landowners were. Uh, and it was this this family called the Trips. And so they kind of, they got permission, right? Uh, they couldn't really understand why people would want to climb back there but they yeah. kind of convinced them they were like this place is special and so they said yeah okay well as long as you're not climbing during shotgun season that's fine and so we would we would give them a card every year and everybody pitch in and give them some money <clears throat> and so um we did that for years there was a, a part that we had climbed on that we did not know didn't belong to them we lost access to that um, just a different landowner, just a different landowner. And again, there wasn't like, we could have probably looked at maps, but there wasn't on X. Well, heck there wasn't smartphones, right? There weren't even really cell phones. So, so we didn't know. <clears throat> and then we found out we, uh, in 2012, one of our board members, Dave Quinney was driving along out there up by the top, probably on the way down to the Holies and noticed that property was for sale. And so this is really when I think the ICA kicked off as a as an LCO as it is now, um, because <clears throat> we had done management stuff of managing things and trail days and things like that and had a relationship with the Access Fund, but reached out to Access Fund to figure out a way to preserve this. And so this is where we got the Access Fund agreed to purchase it and we uh well i can tell you exactly you know let me look i'm actually working on my presentation for the access fund conference so i've got all this information fresh at hand it actually works out that we did it today so the i think everything said and done was about 185 grand and the access fund took that on and had faith in us and we had to obtain 501c3 status because we weren't even there yet. Uh, did that. And then that was the impetus for us to really get it together and start fundraising. And so that's where the competition comes in. And so uh, <clears throat> the competition, the first competition raised about four grand. And so for the first four, seven years, we called them like the first testament. And then we went all the way through up to through six. And then the seventh one was the last one because we had the goal of paying off yes and so we were able to pay that off in seven comps so like the last comp we were grossing 25 grand mm -hmm. um and so 
we did that, paid that off. Um, and now we are the, well, we have been, but officially like for the past few years, the land manager, the access fund holds a conservation easement on it. Yep. Right. So if it should ever change hands or anything still happens. Um, but we're in a position now we interact with the, the forest service and the IDNR have land out there too. And then private landowners. Um, so we manage that and, and deal with all that. And then, um, we paid it off and we were like, man, okay, well, we we're still having these comps, but we were kind of looking what fundraising goals are we going to go towards now? And then in 2019, early 2020, we noticed that property adjacent, it's not directly connected to the Holy Boulders proper. We have a trail that runs through public land to it, but it's a place called the House Boulders. And it was a personal residence uh, and the owner had died. And so we made an offer to the son. And uh, I think he was really excited that it was going to be a, a place that was open to the public. Cool. And so we were Very able cool. to work out something with him. And so Access Fund again stepped in and allowed us to purchase the house boulders, uh, which is another, we, you know, we, we put it on the comp last year. It's on the comp this year. And we had another 60 problems to add. It's uh, a gorgeous south facing area on a hill that has a lot more moderate and easy stuff more than the Holy Boulders proper does. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were able to purchase that. And so now we're fundraising towards that. You know, I don't know if we'll be able to pay it off with this comp alone, but this comp, I mean, that we were talking before, we'll have, I can't remember exactly how much. We had three something signed up at last count. We just extended registration again. So we'll have 350 competitors, 400 spectators. That's um, amazing. And if we don't gross again, 25 to 30 grand, I'd be surprised. Um, so all that is able to go right back to paying that off. What's um, the Delta? How much you got left? Um, let me see. I honestly can't remember. Yeah, we're talking like, we talking like a few more comps, you know, a few more years of comps or 10 I more years think of comps? Un, I think it's like 40, maybe. Okay. 40 or under. It's not, <clears throat> it's not much. It's, it was significantly less, less expensive comparatively. Sure. Because it's not as big. It's a, tw it's, tw it's a 20 acre plot and the majority of it doesn't have boulders. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we're investigating some other things as well, right? Being put in the position of land managers now, um, it, you know, that's, that was really, that was really the thing that took us into kind of the, the next level is, okay, now we're a ma land manager. You're, a, we're a 51C3. Then you got to deal with insurance, property taxes, and all these other things. Um, and at this time too, um, in, let me see the year in, uh, in 2014. So this is post us buying Holy Boulders. Um, some board members like Dave hug, um, got permission to bolt 
the it's a limestone crag in Père Marquette State Park. It's closer to St. Louis in Illinois. And uh, so began working on that, and that kind of got us a relationship. Dave works for the IDNR. Got us a relationship with the IDNR, which then led to them approaching us and giving us the same permission uh, to bolt at Giant City State Park. Giant City had been one of those places where there had historically been climbing. I mean, this is kind of one of the – other than Jackson Falls, in the 70s, Giant City was hosting – climbing but it was mostly top rope and maybe some trad climbing and i used to trad climb there and it was scary and run out but the climbing is fantastic so the park wanting to attract more people reached out to us uh because we had seen what we had done at pear marquette and pear marquette and at giant city um we the ica was contracted we had an agreement and we were the ones who bolted but friends of Pear Marquette and friends of Giant City, like friends organizations, they paid for all the hardware. Um, <clears throat> and so we bolted, especially at Giant City, a couple different areas, uh, Shelter One, Macanda Bluff, and then Devil's Stand Table. And there's quality routes from 5.4 up to 5.13. And it was really amazing because the park was behind it. There wasn't this antagonistic relationship. We had a ribbon cutting. The park officials came out and we just recently had a ribbon cutting at Fern Cliff State Park, south of Goreville, Illinois. And the same thing happened. Goreville, uh, I mean, Fern Cliff was an area in which there had been a lot of climbing, but 30 years ago had really lost access to climbing, except in maybe a couple spots. But because of the successes at Pear Marquette and Giant City State Park, we were able to get permission to develop that. So we had a lot of folks on the board. I wasn't a, uh, a part of the development because we had some folks who have a lot of experience bolting. And then some of our board members hadn't, and they just threw themselves in. They got trained. They threw themselves in. And man, they were out there in the dog days of summer. And if you haven't been to Southern Illinois in the summer, it's 90 degrees, 90% humidity. Oh, yeah. They were out there hanging on ropes, cleaning lines, bolting lines. And so we had, on September 30th, we had a grand opening. State, the head of the, the IDNR, state officials out there. Um, so we forged good relationships um, with state organizations. We got permission. We were approached by the city. I say city the township of Alto Pass, which is kind of on the wine trail in Southern Illinois. And they have a little cliff band on a little trail right outside of town, able to develop that. Um, so building mutually beneficial relationships, um, working with the Forest Service now on their management plan for Jackson Falls, because they have a lot of ideas. And so being, you know, it's, it's, in, it's nice to be a recognized voice in that, like, when they they had a big thing and we went and we went and talked to them about plans and they realized the importance of climbing at Jackson Falls and so that's that's where we're at as far as you know the history of the ICA up in town now a lot of hard work from a lot of people and I'm just 
I've been on the board, you know, five or six years, been the president for a couple. It has nothing to do with me. It's just, it's just the people that have come before and just people willing to put in massive amounts of hard work, you know, cause we're an all volunteer organization. So. Right. Oh my gosh. All right. I have so many air. I have so many ways I want to go with this now. Cause we just, yeah, okay. got a huge brain dump, but let's, it was initially called the Southern Illinois climbers Alliance. And I yes. want to just establish that for the listeners. Like, you know, now you're the IC the Illinois climbers Alliance, mm-hmm. which sounds like a state, you know, a statewide organization, but all this, all, you know, I'm from Chicago. There's no rock up there. You have to go to the Southern part of the state to go rock climbing. So it's, it sounds like it's a statewide organization, but you're really focused on a pretty narrowed area. Yeah. Well, and, and so we've been talking about that a lot too. The climbing is down here and that can't be helped, right? There's Pear Marquette and there's some other areas, but they're really the quality of rock, like geologically, just the sandstone down here is just, it's abundant and it's amazing. And it's, yes. they we're always finding new stuff, mm-hmm. but um, it's not just about Southern Illinois, because even though the climbing is down here and the community is great, we are not the majority of people using it. The majority of people using it are coming from the Metro East St. Louis area, or they're coming mm-hmm. from Chicago or Champaign or Bloomington. Yep. Sure. And so we wanted to reflect the statewideness of it, right? It's the climbing is, is down here. And this is where the, a lot of the hands-on work has to be done, but that doesn't mean that all the advocacy has to be done here, right? Illinois, because it's, because of Chicago has a huge population. Right. And climbing is only increasing in popularity. And I mean, good grief. We were working with two new climbing gyms opened up in Chicago in the last, during COVID. Mm-hmm. Like, in, I mean, I bet you every neighborhood in, in the city and multiple suburbs could support a gym, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we are really trying to expand to make people f- all over the state a part of this. <clears throat> it's not, this isn't just a Southern Illinois climbers club, yeah. right? We happen to live down here. We tend to be the people who end up physically doing a lot of the stewardship. But man, I will tell you what, when we um, we were doing some rebolting at Jackson Falls and I just put out a social media post about what we were doing and people were like, we just want to give, right? How can we help? And so anytime that we say to people like, this is what we're doing, this is how much it costs to rebolt a route, people are so willing to pitch in because mm-hmm. they enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and then the comp, right? There are lots of opportunities. We just had trail days for the comp and we had our own SIU group and then the U of I group. The U of I group, it's always been great, man. They come down and do so much work. So we want everybody in Illinois to feel invested in Illinois climbing and to be excited about it, to have access to it because this is just because this is where it's at doesn't mean they don't have a part in that. They're invited. Everyone's invited. Oh man. And, and, and and even people from outside Illinois, right? Indiana and, uh, St. Louis, man, I met a group at Alto pass because they were from Memphis rocks, Jim. And it was the closest place for them to come to climb. So we just want people, we could always use more 
members. I will say this membership is people donate and people give and people support. But what we would really love is for people to become members, um, especially if you're in Illinois. You can become a joint access, fu uh, access fund and ICA member. That helps us to, to do things and it gives us a bigger a bigger voice, you know? Yep. That's so true. Do you guys ever travel north? I mean, it's like several hours. What is it? Six, seven yeah, hours? Yeah, so I mean, we're I mean, five or six hours from Chicago, but we have a board member, Doug Rothy, who lives in Springfield. And Doug is kind of our northern central Illinois advocate. Cool. So he ends up going a lot like he goes to gyms in Peoria. He goes to comps at First Ascent. Patagonia, Chicago will have events and Doug will go up there and have ICA tents. We've gone... Stuff up at Soil and St. Louis or Upper Limits. And Upper Limits is a huge sponsor of ours. And First Descent always comes down. So there's a lot of great cooperation. We have so many good friends from up in, in the Chicago area. But it's hard for us to get up there. So we, we've we actually been working. I hope this does, this is taking us in a different direction. But <clears throat> after, the last go for it. Fund, after the last Access Fund conference, we kind of realized that you know, the board, we had kind of been relying on the board to do the lion's share of work. And it just kind of, you know, you get burned out. If anybody's been part of a board or a volunteer organization, you get burned out. And it was really encouraging to see people engaging the community. So we kind of, we kind of reset, had a retreat, kind of talked about what we wanted to do and reset, focus on committees and involve giving oversight, but allowing more people to be involved. And so we're still working on that. It's not perfect. We're still trying to figure all that out, but we want more input. We want, we want people in Chicagoland to have, to have a voice and feel connected as well. So that's, that's stuff that we're working on. We know it's, it's not perfect because again, the nuts and bolts stuff happens down here. Sure. But there's so much to be done advocacy-wise, education-wise, working with gyms and and all those things to you know help with gym to crag transition and all that stuff. So, right. Is there a gym in Carbondale? No, there is not. Um, SIU recently at the rec center, which you have to be a member of, like. Uh, they put a nice Walltopia wall, like bouldering wall, in, and they got a kilter board. Oh, and then I just go. had a meeting a few weeks ago with a, a local gym owner who wants to put a bouldering wall in as well. So cool. there are options. You know, it used to be back in the day that like Dan and Dave Chancellor from So Ill had mm -hmm. their garage and that was the gym. Yeah. And everybody hung out yeah. there or people had home walls. But Carbondale's just not big enough. Right. No, St. Louis, that. several. Champaign, Bloomington. Peoria. Yep. But uh, St. Louis is the closest or maybe Evansville. So right on. Um, still so many directions I want to take this. What comes to mind right now is the land manager part. I'm looking mm -hmm. at this like from a national spectrum out west. This is not like a perfect uh, model, I guess, but out west, lots of public land. We're working with Forest Service, BLM, Park Service. As you start to move east, get into the Great Plains and the Midwest, I almost yeah, see this hybrid of sorts where you got some federal land managers, some private land, private owners, uh, 
maybe not with the Minnesota and Iowa folks that I talked to. I think that was mostly private and like state agencies. And then as you move maybe further east, there's still some forest. Of course, the Daniel Boone National Forest by in Kentucky, the White Mountain National Forest in New Hampshire. But you start getting into a, like a lot of private uh, yeah. private land, pri- private landowners. So when you're talking between a federal land manager and a state land manager, how, how do you approach that? Are you taking different tactics or got different talking points and such? What's that look like for you? State-wise, it's been nice because a couple board members are state employees and like work within that system. And we also have contacts built up. The state state is easier to work with directly because they're a bit more accessible and they have, and there are more state parks and they're, they're better staffed because they have more funding. So we don't have any park service or BLM. Like there's no BLM land in the East, right? They're right. in the Midwest. Yep. But there's a lot of forest service. As most of Southern Illinois is Shawnee national forest. Mm-hmm. And we just had a meeting with them, but his name is escaping me right now. Super nice guy. The director of, the Shawnee is also the forest supervisor for the Hoosier National Forest in Indiana. And so I don't think I'm out of step saying, I think they would agree with me that the forest service is notoriously um, overworked and understaffed. And so the people that work hard, man, there are some people that just bust their butts. We've got just fantastic forest service employees, but it is different working with them because the the scope is so much larger, right? They've got forest service to manage, wilderness areas within the forest to manage. Um, state employees, right? If you are the site supervisor, you might be the site supervisor for a couple of parks, but you've got assistant site supervisors and you've got people you can, it's it's a little easier to get to uh, to get to the people who are in charge and can, and do those things. And because Illinois is notoriously corrupt and slow moving, but <laughs> the IDNR has been really easy to work with. Channels are clear. Expectations, I think, are clear, especially as we've built those. And it's their bureaucracy moves faster than federal bureaucracy. I think. Of course. Right, right. And, uh, and then private, you know, that's just a dance of, and I deal with that like, hunting and fly angling, right? It's like navigating the big issue in fly fishing right now is is public water, but private access in some states, there's private water. And then, you know, with hunting, it's getting hunting permissions. And the same was kind of been with climbing, uh, securing permissions and, and doing things like that. But now um, we are landowners and we're land managers. And then uh, board member Philip Carrier, he owns, he bought the property that's up top of the cliff where the dwelling used to be. And he lives up there and that's where we host the comp. And so he has forged relationships with his neighbors up there. And so there's a lot of stuff that comes about through that. Um, There's a lot of hard work that goes in. Like I said, between the holy boulders and the house boulders, there is forest service land. And there's a small parcel of IDNR land, might not even be 20 acres, landlocked parcel that was purchased by the IDNR to protect a long-eared bat habitat or something like that. Mm. And so um, working with 
those land managers on mutually beneficial projects and communicating with them. And, you know, like we can, we can offer workers and trail days to do things to help clean up areas and do things. So I think it's just knowing who to talk to and having a good reputation and then putting your money where your mouth is and, and showing them you, you know, you can do it. Right. Because if, if, if you can't manage your own property well, or your own, you know, the things that you own well, um, or your, the work that you've done in other places hasn't gone over well, then that doesn't speak well, but we've, we have a long history of, of, uh, working hard to build positive relationships. You've gotten so much done in, in a couple of decades. I mean, the, the list of yeah. projects and successes that you'd listed off earlier. I mean, that's, that's impressive. That's, it's kind of a short amount of time, you know, like, and, and it is. And so I think someone pointed this out. It would be easy for, and I'm not saying we have, we've put in a ton of work and it, and it wouldn't happen without the ICA and the work that's put in. But the benefit is that we are where we're at, right? Um, we're not in Colorado or we're not in Wyoming or Utah where there's kind of a battle for public land, right? You've got all these different user groups and some of them can coexist peacefully and then some of them, they don't really. Like, you know, in Moab, it's it's – like Jeep people and climbers and mountain bikers, it's not necessarily the the most harmonious relationship from what I understand. We're in Southern Illinois. We have amazing climbing and we have a lot of it, but we're not out West or the gunks or something. So we don't necessarily have the pressure. We have, we have, you know, we have impact, but we don't have the huge clash of user groups. Because I feel like, I feel like it's, it would be easy to look at us and for us to kind of be like, oh man, look at all, we are, we have done, I'm, I'm not denigrating the work that we've done because it's been amazing. <laughs> but I see how hard like the SLCC, you know, like, or the SLCA works. Yes. Right. That out West, it seems that those battles are really hard fought. And sometimes you're just, you're treading water or you're just trying to get an inch back. And so our success has been partially, I think, to the climate, where we're at, the willingness of people, and really the willingness of, uh, a lot of it, it's just the willingness of people to step up and to take some risks. And it's it's worked out. Well, not only like recreational user groups, perhaps butting heads. And there has been, I think, plenty of success stories of, of the mountain bikers, the equestrian folks, the climbers, the, yeah. the whatevers um, coming together over a common cause and, and working stuff out and having success stories. It's not just like the, the recreational user groups um, fighting for their space, but you know, the federal land managers have multiple use mandates that oh, yeah. accounts for recreation, for logging, for oil and gas, blah, 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 you know, extraction, extractive uses, you know, and the, you know, now you're stewing a whole bunch of the different things in this crazy pot, trying to work it all out. Like, and that's another major challenge. We have benefited 
there is some logging that takes place in the Shawnee and there are folks that are really have a problem with that. I'm, I'm not really one of those myself, but the Shawnee is designated as a recreation forest. That's the priority of the Shawnee because it's not, it's not like super dense old growth forest that's prime. There is some good stuff as far as logging would be concerned. And I know people criticize the forest service in, in that respect, but the Shawnee is a recreation forest. And so that has <clears throat> worked in our favor. Mm -hmm. There are some wilderness areas that we're not allowed to pursue climbing on. There would be some great place, you know, garden of the gods and some other places, but it's striking that balance um, in, in the meeting that we had with the forest service about Jackson falls, we kind of tried to stress to them, right. To develop a good user group with equestrians, but they love Jackson falls. But the point we made was there are lots of places. There are 450 miles of trail in Southern Illinois to ride horses, but there's very little national forest other than Jackson falls that we're allowed to climb on. And Jackson falls is spectacular. And I think some forest service folks from around the country and other forests got to see it. We got to kind of tell them like, this is a, this is a beautiful, rare thing. Yeah. And so, you know, being an advocate for that, respecting other user groups, understanding, but also saying, okay, we've, you know, we've got a, something special here um, and we need to, to work within what we have because some of the other places we just can't, can't expand into because they're, their wilderness. And I know that's a big issue out West. Now that's kind of a big issue on the, on the scene, yep. but for us, it's not, it's not a huge issue other than just working within the confines of what we have and protect, yeah. keeping that and protecting that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. There's a word on the ICA's homepage that like outlines the organization's values. Uh, one, I mean, one of them is education, another is conservation. And then this third one really jumped out at me. I've, I don't think I've seen this in anyone's mission or value statement or bulleted values list on their webpage, but it's cooperation. And I was hoping you can expand on that one specifically. And I got a feeling I know we're going to go with this, but I think it's in close relation to what we've been talking about and what you've been able to accomplish over the last 20 years or so working with these land managers. Can you expand on the word cooperation? Yeah, you know, if if you are not building positive relationships, if you are not cooperating, if you're not learning to work together, um, then it's really hard. You're making it harder on yourself to get things done. Um, because I can think of several things going on right now. Um, some things happening at the house boulders. I can't really get into the details, but it's cooperation because of hard work of board members and climbers putting in the work to build relationships with public land managers, private landowners, using our individual skill sets and experience and utilizing resources from all over, all over the state, right? That's one of the that's one of the things that we're really trying to do on the board too is there are ways just because people aren't down here and can't physically be here to help with some of these things there are 
so many talented climbers who have skills in a varied range of, you know, areas that they can help in so many ways. Um, so cooperation between us, cooperation with, you know, different user groups, cooperation with the community, right? For the competition, we've built relationships with the people around us. So people love, like my band plays at the comp every year. Oh, and nice. The neighbors will all sit out on their porches. They love it because they hang out. They see people from all over the place. It, Carbondale Chamber of Commerce and Tourism, right? It brings people in. Cooperation with the small town of Alto Pass, with the IDNR, with any of any of our sponsors, right? This is how stuff has to get done because as popular as climbing is getting, it's still climbing. You know, it's not football or something. It's we, if you want something, you kind of got to make it happen. And uh, so that's, that's what we're about. It's none of this, none of, none of any of these successes would have happened without cooperation, right? Without the original group of climbers getting together you know because if you if you think about it on the base level sometimes climbers climbing can be kind of a very individualistic pursuit sure. uh, because it's you doing this thing but climbers willing to come together to fight for a cause and then you build this momentum and this is what you see in lcos all over the country and i think you said the stories are probably pretty similar as far as there being a catalyst that's either a, a, an opportunity or a danger, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Some area is going to close down or something. And uh, it only happens if, if you can build cooperation. So I think every year, you know, the network kind of grows and the sphere grows and, and more people know. And then that just expands your opportunities. And then, you know, part of that cooperation is the access fund too. Mm -hmm. Not to, uh, you know, you know, pander to the access fund <laughs> crowd. But I mean, that's a huge part of it, right? Co going to the conferences and talking with other LCOs and having the support, right? Building the relationship. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a month I have to email Jenna or, you know, or Andrea or, you know, or Ty or, you know, whoever was when they were here, right? Those guys are amazing. And they help with that connectivity to, to put us in touch with, there's an opportunity in Western Kentucky. And Daniel Dunn put us in, in touch with a guy who I'd kind of known tangentially through friends. And, and now they're kind of getting an LCO off the ground and getting started, right? There's just... I think it's I think it's a willingness to take on. We took that first leap with the Holy Boulders. And now that gives you some confidence to kind of like, okay, we can I can do this, you know? Yeah, sorry, that's a lot. I tend to ramble. No, it's all right. And yeah, quick shout out to Jenna. She helps with the podcast. Andrew. Oh my gosh. Running... I don't know. Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying anything about anybody else. But like she just a. She just makes it run. Yeah, yeah, makes the magic happen with the conferences yeah, yeah. and and everything. With, yeah. well, well, with everything, getting LCOs off the ground, and she just yeah connecting people knows what's going on, <clears throat> and uh, so yeah, shout out to Jenna. 
Yeah. Uh, anyone listening that's talking about uh, batting around, forming an LCO or anything, yeah. Jenna Winkler, hit her up. So let's get let's uh, let's talk about a, a, one of those successes. Um, let's dive into the Fern Cliff a little bit, because yeah, you know, this is another unique thing that I don't hear very often. Like you got you, this, not back to the cooperation, but and correct me if I'm wrong, you were approached by them. So okay, so it happened at at, at Pear Marquette. And so they kind of started there and we built from there. And then we were approached by the IDNR for giant city and that went so well and it was received so well in there. I mean, this, if you haven't been down to giant city uh, and you're anywhere within the area, it's so worth it. Gorgeous South facing cliff, great winter crag, um, great climbing, the easiest approach. The uh, the only approach that's easier is like Wall Street in Moab, right? <laughs> the river road. Um, it's an easy approach. So much fun. And so had a great relationship. And so Fern Cliff had been on the list. And I will add, Fern Cliff also includes Cedar Bluff, which we talked about, right? Cedar Bluff was yes. the original thing that got everything kicked off. <clears throat> mm-hmm. We have gotten now permission to new do new development at Cedar Bluff. So everything has come full circle. Oh, there you go. Because that was the yeah. place where, yeah, because it was like it next. Is an off, it is an off-site Ferncliff site. It's under the same management area. Mm-hmm. So Ferncliff reached out and um, Dave Hug and Kevin Searsiga, board members who are, uh, Kevin's a former board member who were IDNR employees worked with Jay, the site supervisor at Fern Cliff. The climb, I mean, the walls are gorgeous and spectacular. And they just really wanted to see this happen. Mm-hmm. And so they worked really hard and did all this legwork and got this going and, and they were behind them. And so we've got, I mean, I think there are she's 70 new, 70 routes there now maybe mm-hmm. no, maybe i'm may maybe four i don't know i, I might be wrong Several I thought kevin told me there's a lot yeah and quality easily accessible gorgeous rock because there was a wall that was climbed previously and then a, no there's got to be 70 routes a lot of a ton of new Areas were opened up. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll give you a list. I've got like an actual thing. So the project first pitched to to the prior site supervisor uh, by Kevin. And the guy was getting ready to retire, and it was a little bit more than he wanted to take on. So they pitched it to the new site supervisor, Jay Massey. And um, he was interested, right? So we talked about our history, a history with the IDNR, and our experience in route development and then maintenance and rebolting and all those things. And so um, we talked about, we first kind of broached it with installing fixed anchors at the existing area and then expanding into that because there were some top rope walls. So it just kind of went from there. And then it took, you know, it took some work, right? This is one of the things that you learn as you're dealing with land managers is um is like serp stuff i don't know if people are familiar with that right certified environmental review process 
Um, is that like a, is that like a, a NEPA equivalent kind yes, of thing? Yes, it's like an it's yeah. So so there's NEPA, there's SERP, there's all these different things that you have to go through, right? You have to have uh, you know archaeological sociological studies done you have yes. to have or anthropological studies done you have to have biological studies done right there's <clears throat> biologists are going to have restrictions and all those things uh, but communication continue we go through all that we have to talk about liability right these are things that um not all lcos necessarily think about right we've spent i've spent more time than i thought i would trying to understand the scope of our insurance policies, right? <laughs> what Fun. we need, what we don't for the comp, for our comp and just for climbing in general. Right. <clears throat> and the, and the little minutia of who's protected, who's liable, all, all of those things. And so when you take on any of these things, you, you add to your, your plate and to your responsibilities, but the Fern cliff thing, there's 1200 volunteer hours put in from ICA board members and others. 70 routes, 56 of them were new. Four of them were trad lines that got anchors and then 10 were old top rope lines uh, with potential for more, right? But we're still, they're kind of where they're at. Yeah, so it's the IDNR want, they want people to come climb, right? The IDNR uh, want people in their parks mm -hmm. to enjoy that. They yeah. want people coming to Southern Illinois to enrich our economy and to enjoy what we've got. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, this is a part of that. And so we had a big, a big day and tons of people came out to climb and there were officials there and it's just a awesome thing. That's so cool. Did you get any like footage or is there any, like, is there, is there some kind of marketing video for this? Cause this is like such a, I don't know if there's story. a video, there are a bunch of photos. And then I have like a graphic of a timeline that one of our board members did. Cool. Um, but yeah, we can get you some of that stuff. It's, it's, yeah. it's just a gorgeous area. And right. All of this is it's 30 minutes from Carbondale. It's closer than Jackson falls. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, I think one of our goals is to, you know, impact is a big issue. Uh, that's what we're working on the Forest Service. J Jackson Falls is heavily impacted, mm -hmm. not just from climbers, but from equestrians and other people. But climbers, we have an impact. And so hoping to spread it out. I don't know if Jackson Falls is Jackson Falls. It's always going to be the go-to. But if we can if we can relieve some of the pressure there by providing concentrated, high-quality climbing in southern Illinois, we're only – benefiting everybody and hopefully we can maybe mitigate some of the impact mm -hmm. by spreading it out yeah yeah a little bit of a relief valve of sorts yeah yeah and, and and again i don't know i don't know i don't know if we're taking any data on that but anecdotally yes but anecdotally i think people it's easier for folks to come down for a weekend from st louis and go to Giant City or Fern Cliff and not have to drive an extra half an hour or 45 minutes to Jackson Falls. Sure. And that and that appeals to some people. You can camp right in Fern Park in Fern Cliff. Mm -hmm. Right? So, or Giant City. Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought of Jackson Falls as like the crown jewel. That's I mean that's like when I just when I heard about Southern Illinois, that's what it was. 
you're not going to you're not going to beat the concentration of quality southern illinois sandstone like you, you just you can't really oversell jackson falls it's amazing but what you can do is offer different climate like I, and i'll say this if you haven't been to southern illinois the rock <clears throat> while it's all sandstone it is varied right if you've spent time in chattanooga or horse pens 40 or little rock city or in the southeast it's similar but the rock in southern illinois varies right giant city rock is really irony there's a lot of big iron bands and tubes and knobs hmm. Jackson Falls is this beautifully sculpted sandstone with crimps and slopers and overhanging walls. Cedar Bluff, Ferncliff is is a lot like Jackson Falls in a lot of ways. Cedar Bluff is this highly conglomerated, pebbled, banded sandstone uh, that's a couple pitches tall. And oh, then wow. Alto Pass is really short but fun kind of a combination between giant city and and cedar bluff it's grittier right and because they're different types of sandstone i i think like geolo geology nerds would say they're different types of sandstone but they've each got their own character and so and the holy boulders right the holy boulders is different from from the bouldering and in other places right the bouldering at the beach is different from these other places there's it's it's pretty incredible. I know it does sound incredible, and it's on my list to to get down there. I have to I have to check it out. I mean, you got guys like Matt Siegel, Jimmy Webb talking about the Holy Boulders. I mean, you know some of the biggest bouldering and and you know climbing names bragging about this place. Like, I I wasn't there, but one of our board members' husbands was out there, and I think maybe he's doing something with so ill. But they were down there. Fred Nicole was at the Holy Boulders. I mean, does it get any more legendary than that? No, like, no, on. it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> and they come away. It's it's just classic. You Sweet, know? man. So cool. Who would have thought Illinois got the goods? I, I know. And that's that's what you're saying about the Midwest, right? It's I think people for, forget because we don't have big mountains. We don't have the most spectacular views, right? Jackson Falls is a canyon. Yeah. So you're going down, but I mean, it, it's amazing. And it, it's, it's, it's different. You know, not everywhere is going to be out West with these grand vistas and stuff, but the climbing is just quality. Right, right. That's amazing. Well, yep. On the list, I, I'm glad we got to put a big plug for, Illinois climbing here. I hope uh, you see some more folks and yeah, start putting a, a bow on in this a little bit. Um, what are you guys soliciting um, help on and support for? Is it the, the house boulder acquisition? Anything yeah, else? So, that... so we're, we're paying off the house boulders and our competition really goes towards that. But we are always fundraising for uh, our rebolting efforts. Um, if you know, I assume a lot of the people who listen to the Access Fund podcast probably have something to do with an LCO or or are familiar with all that. But if you're not familiar with uh, rebolting and 
re- bolt maintenance, it's a lot of work. It is. Like it's physically brutal work. It's work at height. It's it presents its own set of challenges and it's expensive, right? Um, and so we've been good. Like the American Safe Climbing Association has been good to donate stuff. At, oh, yeah. And sometimes people will say, we had a guy, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I apologize to him. Paramarquette said, hey, I want to put mussy hooks. I want to pay for mussy hooks on every route of Paramarquette. Sweet. And he did. And that's what it takes. Like I said, becoming a member so that you can know what's going on. But even just uh, just even say, here's, you know, I don't know, a few bucks for, for bolt replacement. I mean, seriously, if every climber in Illinois who's ever been to the, to climb in Southern Illinois just said, here's a dollar or $5 just to help cover those costs. It'd be huge Mm -hmm. because it just goes right back into that. You know, we don't have any paid staff or anything like that. So the money can just go back into that buying bolts, buying glue, right? Bolts we can hang on to, but glue, right? You got to use glue or it goes bad. Got to use it. It's the things you don't think about, right? You got to buy drill bits. You got to buy nozzles for the glue. You got to replace static ropes and grigris and all those things and ascenders when they go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the comp is really, you know, and I'm sure that something else will come up after the house boulders. We have plenty of things going on, plenty of projects in the works. Um, there's always infrastructure stuff that that can be done. But really, you know, as our mission, as you said, you know, our mission is to promote and support conservation and preservation. We use cooperation, but stewardship is huge. And so <clears throat> we just have to steward those resources and take care of them. Um, and if you, uh, you know, people have been good about letting us know. You know, if things are loose, I will also say this, if you're headed down to Jackson Falls, um, take a wrench with you, right? If there are things, if there are bolts that are spinning, you can tighten them up. That is one thing I've been wanting to put in my kit. It's just bring a couple different size wrenches for like a three eighths or a half inch and just be ready to tighten something down. Yeah, you know, because we, it, <clears throat> depending on it, we try to replace everything with gluins, right? Because mm-hmm. eventually in sandstone, if a stainless bolt, it can rust out and, and do things, and you'd be amazed sure. at the addition of some things, depending on the type of bolt that was put in. But a lot of people will be like, hey, I noticed this hanger was kind of spinning. And that's not something that we have to go out. If, 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 if it can be tightened down, tighten it down, right? It's kind of, if you see it, you can, you can do your part to, to fix that little bit. So, yeah. 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 Spinners are scary. I had a friend going up a route uh, a couple of weeks ago and I feel like she just like flicked this bolt or flicked the hanger and the quick, I saw a quick jar, like slide down the rope, the, the hanger hanging off of it. I'm like, what the hell was that? 
she's like the hanger just fell off and she like didn't fall on it i mean she like i think bumped it with her foot and popped and was like it's worse when you get the anchors too like if you get your anchors are spinning on like multi-pitch or you've got you know you've got where it's like not even a right size bolt and there's like this much thread sticking out you know there are some janky setups and so having like sops in practice and having like this is what our anchors look like all of our anchors are going to be glue-ins with chain to quick links and either mussy hooks or rings right right we're you know mussy hooks are one of those topics uh right that was that recent fatality Yes, there was an accident with them. Yeah. Yes. And so you have to, just like with anything, people have to be trained, know how to use them properly, right? Uh, but just kind of having having everything be the same so people can kind of know. And now that and that's hard work, right? Jackson Falls has tons of routes. It's easier when you're developing an area and you have control. But when people have been bolting in an area for 30 or 40 years, it's going to vary. Bolting style is going to vary, right? Not everybody has bolted the same, right? right? Things were a lot more run out back in the day. Um, yes. So, you know, it's just, there's a lot involved with that. Yeah. So. And like you said, it costs money. So people with less money don't want to spend as much money on more bolts. So bolts maybe might be spacey because they don't have enough hardware to make it. Well, and like, you know, with the snake dike controversy, that the guy, the guy, the first ascension, it was, was like, we just put in the bolts that we had. We didn't have any more bolts or we would have put more in. Right, I don't, you know, right. so sometimes it's not a boldness thing. It's just, they're, they're expensive. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So yeah. Five, 10 bucks goes a long way for the ICA. Yeah, oh yeah. Get, it get, definitely get more does. hardware. Yeah. And it, right it might cost about 60 or 70 bucks to, to equip a route. Yeah. Up to a hundred bucks, depending on how many bolts there are. So yeah. Yep. Yep, adds up. Well, uh, just real quick plug. I mean, I'll see you at the annual conference here in a little over a week, week and a half. Um, yeah. yeah, which is good. I'm glad you're going to put your face back in front of some folks at the conference. And you got the Holy Boulders competition coming up this weekend. So lots of cool things going on for the ICA. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Always moving forward. So right on. All right. Well, any parting words, Andrew, before we uh, sign off here? I mean, I think the cooperation thing just kind of wraps it up for me. I mean, that's so huge. And you put it such a great context and, and story behind what cooperation means to the ICA and how that could honestly just be applied across the board to any LCO. So, yeah, anything else beyond that? No, we're just uh, just thanks to all the people who have put in the work from the, you know, from the people who, you know, Eric and John and all these the old school guys to anybody who's come out and volunteered for a trail day uh who's donated or come to climb right that that's this is what it's all about you know we don't just do it for us we do it so that people can enjoy it my kids continue to enjoy it um and uh yeah when you come be respectful of the places you go clean up after yourself brush your tick marks that's that's the one thing i I uh, I do want to remind people, especially at these bouldering areas. I don't have a problem with tick marks, but you just just gotta wipe them off. It's, but they seem to get longer and longer as the years go by. <laughs> um, but yeah, just uh, 
have it in whatever you do just have a conservation stewardship mindset all right thanks everyone for tuning in i i really hope you all enjoy this show as much as i enjoy making it it's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to so thanks so much for listening before you depart i want to run a few things by you I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, And after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org. So check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way. And I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.